0: It's good to be back with you guys. It's been a long time, and uh, I'm excited to teach and preach again. I'm a teacher, so I love to teach. Uh, but um, I usually try to stop by 1230, but last week I learned it's okay to go to 1 o'clock. So I may follow in Matthew's footsteps. Nah. Um, okay. All right. Last time we were here, uh, the la- the previous two messages I put up online this week. If you want to go back and review, some of you weren't here, but they're up. And uh, I think this will be number sixty-four in this series. So we're inching ever closer to the infamous one hundred. I'm sure we'll get there. But uh, the last time uh, we were here, back in May, I believe it was May the third. Um, I was at the end of chapter 10 attempting to finish and I didn't, which is okay. So we're going to dive right back in there. But for the sake of review, let me just reiterate that from the beginning of chapter 10 through verse 14 of chapter 11 is another one of those parentheses in Revelation that do not advance the narrative, but highlight some things that are taking place in the background or the backdrop of this time of tribulation. And what is taking place in the backdrop, just like in chapter 7, has to do with testimony. That even in the darkest of days, God does not leave us without testimony. And men are not left without opportunity to repent. And so we're focusing on the testimony of this particular parenthesis in chapter 10 and 11. We talked extensively about the testimony of this mighty angel, whom I believe is Jesus Christ, in the first seven verses of chapter 10. This had to do with the little book in his hand, which I believe is the title deed of the earth, the voice of the seven thunders, we don't know what they said, John was told not to write it, and the mystery of God. So we spoke extensively last time, or two, two sermons ago, about the mystery of God, and that language, as it appears in the New Testament, and how in these days all the great mysteries of God will be revealed, and God has an exclamation point for every question mark. Okay, men have a lot of questions and a lot of doubts, and they mock and you know point to seeming contradictions in the in the in the Bible. Um, recently, somebody that I know and respect. Uh, express doubt about the Word of God and shows himself to be moving toward the spirit of the age and changing his opinion about certain things written in the Scriptures and what he brought up was that don't you understand the Bible is full of contradictions and maybe we can't trust it like we've been taught to trust it and the best example he could come up with was in the Gospels it says that Judas out of regret for what he did betraying Christ, went and hung himself. And then it tells us in Acts chapter one that Judas, uh, uh, his bowels spilled out on the ground, and that's how he died. And this is a contradiction. And as a result, we can't trust the word of God. That's the best this person can come up with. I thought it was quite hilarious. But it's just it's it's funny how people can. Take something like that, and they can't step outside of their American ethnocentricity and see the foolishness of such an accusation against the Word of God. When we see language, Judas hung himself, we're so ethnocentric and racist and so pro American that we can't even step outside to ask what that's talking about. Okay, hung himself, Judas hung himself in first century Rome. Not in 19th century Western America. You know, You were so ethnocentric that we can't think, pie, think that hang himself means something other than putting a ro- rope around your neck and hanging from a gallows like in the Old West. That's not what that means at all. What did Saul do to kill himself in the Old Testament? He hung himself. What did he hang himself on? His sword. He impaled himself. A man that hung himself in first century Rome, hung himself on his sword. What happens when you hang yourself on your sword? What comes spilling out? Your bowels. There's no contradiction there. There's only a contradiction if you're so close-minded that you can't read the Bible in its historic context and you can only think in terms of America and American history. Americans are so ethnocentric. We think all the world revolves around us, and if it doesn't revolve around us, something's wrong. There was a point this summer with our missions team that I confess I got pretty aggravated with all of them. And I rebuked them very strongly, even to the point that Ricky was a bit shocked. We were in a a cafe ordering lunch, and it's a sweet old Tibetan lady that Jamie and I have known for years. We don't know her personally, but Jamie's given her a tract, and we've gone up there and witnessed for years and and she's got some propaganda and information on the wall in there about some of the atrocities the Chinese have committed against the Tibetans going back to the 50's and a lot of it's very sad and very true but um, she's a sweet lady that doesn't speak very good English and so when you go in there you're you have to write down on a piece of paper what you want to order and you need to write it clearly so she can read it and make it for you Okay. Well, what happened is everybody went in there, and everybody, somebody wrote down on the paper what we wanted, and it was real sloppy, and I couldn't hardly even read it. Well, when the food came out, it wasn't exactly right. And it wasn't exactly right because the woman couldn't read the chicken scratch on the paper. That, that's why it wasn't right. It wasn't because she was you know, not doing her job or whatever. But in that moment, these young people all started speaking up in English, and just everybody coming at her at the same time trying to explain what they what was ordered and why this wasn't right and whatever whatever and the lady doesn't speak English it's not her first language but yet in that moment she was not only expected to understand it she was expected to understand it coming out of the mouths of four or five people at the same time and she was expected to read chicken scratch on top of that so I just had to say wait a minute You guys are so ethnocentric that you haven't even stopped to consider that this woman doesn't speak your language. You think she should speak your language. And not a one of you have taken five seconds to try to even learn two words in her language. Typical American ethnocentrism. And I just said it in front of the whole restaurant. And it needed to be said. That's how we are. We need to humble ourselves when... I'm getting off topic actually. We need to humble ourselves when it comes to the Word of God and understand the historic context and understand that just because something doesn't seem to fit in our ethnocentric mentality doesn't mean that it's got a contradiction. Doesn't mean that the Bible's wrong. And if you're going to change your whole theology over something as foolish as that, I've got to wonder if you even have the Holy Spirit living in your heart. How could you even be that foolish? Where where the dividing line, the battle line today, my friends, is not over the name of Jesus. The dividing line is whether or not this is the Word of God. That's the dividing line. The wheat and the tares in the church are distinguished by an attitude concerning the Word of God. The wheat sees this as the Word of God. It's the authority. The tares are the one that will claim the name of Christ. They'll even say they love Jesus, but they wiggle their way out of it. Well, this can't mean this. Or they'll come up with an interpretation to justify the sins of this age that the church of the living God has not had in 2,000 years of its existence. My friends, if our interpretation of Scripture is different or other than what the church of God for 2,000 years has seen the Word of God to be, then we got a problem. That's Mormonism. Mormonism teaches that the Word of God wasn't properly interpreted for all these centuries and wasn't understanding that its secrets were hidden and that it required the coming of a prophet, Joseph Smith, to reveal the truth. That spirit is no different today than the pastors and teachers that say the church has been wrong all these years about homosexuality and now we've seen the truth. Now it's okay. That's the spirit of Mormonism. And it's the dividing line between the true believers and the false Christians these days. What is your attitude concerning the Word of God? The next time someone tells you there's a contradiction in the Word of God, don't let it be a source of doubt and fear for you. Let it be an impetus to go study the scriptures and see the foolishness thereof. When I was able to take off my American ethnocentric glasses and read the Bible in its grammatical and historical context and quit putting aside the Jewish motif of the scriptures, then it was easy for me to see there are no contradictions. I've seen them all, I've seen the list that the atheists put on the websites, and I've heard the accusations on the college campuses. I'm here to tell you my friends and I'm a student of God's Word I've never found a single contradiction every single one of them has an answer and sometimes the answers are so plain it's plain as the nose on your face okay so man I don't even know how we got off that topic but anyway the next time you think about Judas hanging himself divorce from your mind pictures of the American old West okay Let's go back to the historic context. He hung himself on his sword, and so naturally his bowels fell out onto the ground. And where that took place, the field was purchased with the reward money in fulfillment of prophecy in the book of Zechariah. And everything happened exactly as God said it would. And that's what the book of Revelation is a testimony about. What God says will happen will happen exactly as He says it will happen. And we're going to see an example of that today. With John, but we're um, we talked about the mystery of God. As you get into verse eight through the first two verses of chapter eleven, we move from the testimony of the mighty angel to the testimony of John the Apostle. Okay, John's role here is not just one as one; it's not just as an observer. He's an actor here in this narrative, and he represents the church as an apostle. Upon which, the, the, one of the foundations upon which the church is built, he represents the church. John's not just an observer, he's an actor. And my friends, we are to be actors in these last days, not just observers waiting on the sidelines. Okay? But we're looking at the testimony of John. And then last time I was with you, we focused on verse 8. We looked at John's obedience. John was told to do something by God, a voice from heaven. He was told to go and take the little book out of the hand of the angel. And it says he went and took it. And there was a good lesson there for us. John was told to do something and he did it. He didn't waffle. He didn't make excuses like Moses or like Gideon or Jephthah or these others. He was told to do something by God and he went and he did it. Pretty simple. Something that might be overlooked there as we're studying prophecy. But it's a lesson for us. And that's what we talked about last time. We talked about you know how the Scriptures tell us things to do and they tell us things not to do. Are we as followers of Jesus Christ going to be obedient in this? Are we going to immediately obey? Are we going to waffle? Are we going to change our theology with the spirit of the age? That was the question I left you with. But today let's move on I want to look at verse 9 of chapter 10. John was said, go and take the little book. You know, John's told several things in these chapters, okay? He's told to uh, seal up and write not. He's told to go and take. And then we're going to see in the first part of chapter 11, he's told to rise and measure. So these all go together. This, you can't be separating this here. It's all together. It's all one parenthetical. He was told to go, now I'm sure this mighty angel was a majestic sight, a powerful sight, and to go and say, give me to a mighty supernatural being, Jesus Christ Himself, I believe, and to say it bluntly and to take it required some boldness. Verse 9, I went unto the angel, and I said unto him, give me the little book. And he said unto me, take it, eat it up, and it will make thy belly bitter but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. There's an interesting lesson in verse 9 as well. With simple obedience came a boldness. We want to know what is the secret to boldness for the gospel? I believe it's simple obedience. God says it, just do it. In the moment you need it, the boldness will be there. John needed boldness to do what he was told to do, and God gave it to him. He approached a mighty angel and said, Give it to me! And he took it. When we obey the Lord and His Word, my friends, we can do it with the spirit of boldness. When I preach the Word of God up here, I pray that I always do it with authority. That you hear a conviction in my voice that I actually believe what I'm speaking. If I were to stand up here like half these preachers around America and say, well, some people believe this and other people believe this and you may not agree with my opinion and that's okay, but this is what I think. That's not speaking with authority. Jesus get told His apostles and His followers to speak with authority. And His example is one that spoke with authority. It says that the scribes and the Pharisees marveled when He spoke because He did it with authority. And he wasn't one that was learned growing up in the synagogue and well-educated and all of that in his humanity. When we obey the Lord, we can do it boldly. God's Word tells us to abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. That's the essence of love, Romans twelve nine. The Bible tells us what sin is, what the gospel is. It doesn't matter what the world says doesn't matter what some empty black robes in Washington, D.C. say. These things don't matter. We can stand upon this truth and we can do it boldly, no matter what the cost. They can take away our lives. They can take away our goods. But they can't take away the truth. And that's why I can look at my persecutors in the moments before my death and I can smile. And there's nothing they can do to take away the smile. God's truth abideth still. I think about that old hymn written by Martin Luther, one of my favorites. Let goods and kindred go. Kindred. Are you willing to let your kindred go for the truth? Many Christian parents in this country today are not. Their child's gotten some crazy idea that they were born a homosexual and they can't let it go. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. With simple obedience comes a boldness. And my friends, we can have a spirit of boldness not just before men, but also before the devil himself and mighty principalities. And finally, we can have it before God. Just as John had it before Jesus Christ here. We can have boldness when we approach God. We don't have to tiptoe in his presence because of what God Jesus has done. Let's look at a few verses this morning. Daniel, Acts 22, 21. Matthew, Acts 23.3. I'm going to give you a hard one. Jude, Graham, verse 9. Jude, verse 9. And uh, Bob, if you'll look up James 4.7 and Tony, Hebrews 4.16. Let's talk a moment about boldness. Boldness before men that we can have by obeying God and believing His Word. Acts 22.21. He said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Okay? Paul is preaching here in Jerusalem. Okay? He's preaching around a bunch of Jews that hate him and have falsely accused him of trying to bring Greeks into the temple and stir up trouble. Paul is in a very Jewish context. And he's giving testimony of what God had done in his life. And look at what Paul chose to say here. Paul talks about how Jesus said, get away from here, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Why did God send Paul to the Gentiles? Because the Jews had rejected their Messiah. These words here are very strong, bold words to speak in a Jewish audience. Anybody that thinks a preacher has no right to speak buzzwords to stir up the crowd is wrong because Paul spoke what he spoke here knowing what the reaction would be, but it was the truth. And Paul had the boldness to speak it before men. And it says in verse 22, "...they gave him audience unto this word." They listened to him until he said, "...I'm going to the Gentiles." And then they lifted up their voices and said, "...away with this fellow from the earth It is not fit that he should live." Paul, being a Jew, had to know this would be their reaction. We would say today, well, he should have been smart and should have chosen different words. No, he spoke the truth. And God gave him boldness before men. We can have this boldness. When the world and society and the church and the government says that homosexuality is okay and that there is such a thing as homosexual marriage, we can say, no, there's not. We can say it's sin. And regardless if the reaction is what the crowd has here, that's fine. We can be bold before men. Acts 23.3. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou white wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. Who's Paul speaking to here? The high priest. He was brought before the council after this outbreak in the temple. He appealed to Caesar. Paul was explaining to them that he has lived in all good conscience. And the high priest commanded that Paul be smacked in the face. And what did Paul, how did he respond? God's going to smite you, you whited wall. You've commanded me to be smacked contrary to the law, and you're sitting here accusing me of violating the law. So Paul even had the boldness to speak bluntly to the ruler of his people. We can have that boldness too. We're to pray for our leaders. We're to pray for those in authority, but that doesn't mean we, don't, we can't speak truth to their face. I wish I had an opportunity to speak blunt truth in the face of our president. It doesn't take away from my love for him and my desire that he gets saved. But when we obey God, we can be bold before average men and before powerful men without fear. We can be bold before mighty principalities as well. What's Jude verse 9 say? Graham, would you read that please? And yet Michael and Archangel, Archangel went contending, contending with the devil, he disputed, disputed about the body of Moses. thirst not bring against him a wailing... Michael the archangel, the most powerful archangel in heaven, the one that stands for the people of Israel. Michael gives us an example of the boldness we can have before the devil. Not bringing railing accusations like charismatics are wont to do, you know, arguing with the devil and I I rebuke you Satan and all of this and a demon under every rock. But the Lord... Rebuke you. When Satan tempts us or throws his fiery darts at us or discourages us, we can be bold before him. The Lord rebuke you. Even the Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke thee. The Lord rebuke thee. Elsewhere in the Scriptures. We can have this boldness before the devil himself. It says that Martin Luther picked up an inkwell and threw it at the devil in his room once. Said the Lord rebuke you. And there was supposedly an ink stain left on the wall because of that. James chapter four verse seven. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why do we fear him? We shouldn't fear the devil and his principalities. We can be bold enough to simply resist him and he will flee. Why don't men resist evil anymore? There is no resistance. Much less Against men, I mean, even less so against the devil himself. Resist him and he will flee. That's the power we have because of Jesus Christ. That's the boldness we should have. But the sad thing is the fight is gone from the church even to the point where we don't even want to resist evil anymore. We embrace it. But if we obey God, we can be bold. Resist the devil and he will flee from us. The most amazing... Uh element of our boldness, I believe, concerns its presence before God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If we read this passage in context, it's talking about the role of Jesus Christ as our high priest. A high priest who's been touched with our infirmities, yet without sin. And because Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins, and because He liveth ever to make intercession for us in heaven as our high priest, the Bible says we can come into the throne room of God, not on eggshells, not tiptoeing, but boldly. Boldly. And that in doing so, we can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. When's the last time you approached God in prayer with boldness? When I was crossing the Kardung La, the highest motorable pass in the world on a motorcycle a few weeks ago, and it was lightning all around. There was no shelter. The hail was falling, and the road was being washed out. I approached God with boldness. I screamed at Him, God, help me! Where are you? I'm going to die out here. God, please! I was screaming. I approached his throne room boldly. I didn't curse him. Eric told me later he was doing the same thing. (laughs) I went boldly. It wasn't comfortable, but when the day was done, we were warm and safe in our beds that night wasn't as quick as I thought it would be. But because of Jesus, I could go to God and plead with Him and scream in His presence. And not feel an ounce of guilt. Because that's what the Bible tells me I can do. And what did I find? I did find mercy. And in the time, at the point in time when we needed help the most, when we're standing on the road and a pouring down rain at 17,000 feet and the road has been washed out by a landslide and there's nowhere to go, And Eric is shaking uncontrollably with the symptoms of hypothermia. And I don't know what we're going to do. In that moment, in that time of need, I heard a man yelling at us. And out of the corner of my eye, he grabbed Eric by the shirt and he started dragging him up the hill and said, you're coming with me. He was an Indian Army officer. He took us to a bunker where we found shelter. They gave us tea. They turned on the stove. They took our wet clothes off and they helped us dry out. But we can come to God boldly. Okay, Don't be afraid to do so. David did it concerning his enemies. There's many imprecatory psalms where David cried out to God to avenge him of his enemies. We can take those things to God. Even in this day and time when we hear all this garbage on TV and we face all of this mess in society, we can go to God boldly. Just like Isaiah did, O Lord, that thou wouldest rend the heavens and come down, show yourself. When we obey God and we believe his word, we can be bold before men, we can be bold before the devil and principalities, and we can be bold before God. Job was bold before God. Job never charged God foolishly in all of his trials. He did not speak flippantly or foolishly. But he was very bold. And through that, God showed him where he was wrong. But yet God had pity and compassion upon him. And God honored his boldness. We have a high priest that makes intercession for us. So we can be bold before the Lord. And that's a blessing. Yes? I have this picture of Esther. She knew that if he didn't put a scepter out, she would be dead. And she she went in there boldly to the king. And we can go into the throne room of God. We have no fear of Him holding back his scepter or not allowing us into his, his throne room. We can walk in there with confidence, knowing that I belong here. That's right. And I'm here, just like she did. That's right. And when it comes to men, we should have her attitude. She said, I'm going to go to the king. You pray for me, Mordecai. Y'all fast for me. If I perish, I perish. I'm going to speak the truth these days. I'm going to call sin sin. I'm going to stand on the fact that Jesus is the only way. If I perish, I perish. So be it. God's truth abideth still. But praise God, John had a boldness here because he was obedient, to approach a mighty angel and say, give it to me, something I would have been reluctant to do. It says in verse 9 that the angel gave it to John and told him to do something. He said, take and eat it. Eat it, and it will make your belly bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. John obeyed in verse 10, I took the book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. John obeyed, and exactly what Christ said would happen, the mighty angel is Jesus, we're going to see that very clearly in chapter 11, exactly what Jesus said would happen, happened. When God says something, exactly what He says is going to happen, happens. In fact, in Isaiah, God calls the world to witness issues of challenge to those that would doubt Him. Who is it among you that can declare the end from the beginning and can tell the future as if it has already happened? Just test me. And in that sandwich between two amazing prophecies in which a Persian king is prophesied by name 200 years before his birth, in which the rise of a kingdom is prophesied when it's barely a dot on a map. God says, test me. Fulfilled prophecy is the greatest proof that the Bible is the Word of God and we're fools to ignore that. Sometimes ignorant in need of the truth, sometimes willfully ignorant despite having heard the truth. John obeyed and exactly what the Lord said came to pass. The word in that book was sweet to his mouth but bitter to his belly. I have an image in my mind when I read this. Bob, you may not agree. Krispy Kreme donut. (laughs) Man, it is sweet in the mouth, but very soon thereafter, it's bitter in my belly. Now, Bob told me he could eat six of them on his way home from the pickup to the house. (laughs) I'm thinking bitterness in my belly. Now, it's sweet. It's sweet to the taste. I still think Dunkin' are better. But it's sweet to the taste. But you eat a lot that's sweet to the taste. It's bitter in your belly, whether it's a Krispy Kreme donut or too much candy or whatever. You know this feeling if you eat a lot of candy. In one. My mom used to sit in a bed and eat an entire package of Cadbury eggs. It's like, you guys know what those are? <laughs> oh my goodness. I can barely eat one of them and she could whoop down five of them. I'm thinking sweet to the mouth, but bitter to the belly. Okay? That's the imagery. Sometimes God's truth is very sweet. The psalmist says, eat up the Word of God. It's honey to the mouth. Take and eat. But when we sit and we think about the repercussions for those that don't believe, it's very bitter. And it ought to be humbling and sobering to us. This idea of a prophet seeing the sweetness and the bitterness of God's truth is repeated elsewhere in scripture much like what John experiences let's look at a couple of passages here jim would you look up daniel chapter 10 verse 8 daniel if you look up jeremiah chapter 30 verses 5 through 7 Matthew, Daniel chapter 7, 28. Bob, Daniel 8, 27. And then, uh, Tony, I'll have you look up Zechariah the prophet 13, 8, and 9. What's Daniel chapter 10, verse 8 say? Therefore, I was left alone and saw great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comingness was turned in me into corruption. And I retain no strength. Okay, Daniel had just been given a vision of the glory of God. And he talked about seeing a man very much like what John sees here in chapter 10. Same description as this mighty angel. This is the Messiah. And Daniel says that after this great vision, there was no strength in him. And he was, his belly was turned to rot. He had no strength. Okay? Daniel saw the amazing glory of Messiah, but it zapped his strength because he knew the consequences that would result for those that rejected God both in Israel and the world when Messiah comes. Jeremiah 30, 5-7 For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins, as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble but he shall be saved out of it. Okay, Jeremiah records a very humbling prophecy here after God tells him to write all the words that he's heard in a book at the beginning of the chapter. The prophet is obviously very disturbed and appalled by what he sees. Now these passages here are very interesting because they teach us that there would come a day when Israel would be regathered into the land in unbelief. And that following this regathering, there would be a time of Jacob's trouble. The time of Jacob's trouble, that's another name for the time of tribulation. Or Daniel's 70th week. Back up for a minute to verse 3 here in this chapter. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. That's a glorious, sweet aspect of this prophecy. Part one. When was it fulfilled? And it's continued. When did it start being fulfilled? May 1948. Israel returned to the land. Became a nation again, and even today, Jews from all over the world are making Aliyah. They're making their pilgrimage back to their homeland, but this pilgrimage is in unbelief. They have still they still reject Yeshua as their Messiah, although many young Jewish people are waking up. I read some testimonies last week from my friend that works in Israel and uh, proclaims a lot of truth online that they got an. A, a, They got an invitation from ten young Jewish people who were raised in Jewish homes that wanted to know more about Messiah, Yeshua, and wondered if He would come and speak to them and teach them more and teach them how they could tell this truth to their parents. God's doing something. The church is turning away from God here in America, the great light. But Israelis are waking up. That doesn't tell you we're in the last days. I don't know what does. But Israel would be regathered in unbelief. That was a sweet aspect of that prophecy, but the bitterness came very quickly for Jeremiah. He didn't see days of peace. He saw days of travail when even a man will put his hand on his belly as if he's going to give birth. Alas, the day is great. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. Israel would be regathered in unbelief, a nation born in a day, Isaiah 66. Then she would go through a period of terrible trial and persecution. God would, would bring that upon her to wake her up. But Israel will be saved out of it. Here's another classic example of sweet prophecy concerning Israel that quickly becomes bitter. I love Israel. I love witnessing to Israelis, but I understand that many will perish without Christ in the last days. The remnant that wakes up will be very small. It's sweet God's promises will be fulfilled and Messiah will sit on the throne of David, but it's bitter in the belly knowing what has to happen first. Daniel uh, uh, 7, um, verse 28. I don't remember who I told to read that. Hitherto is <clears> the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel... My agitations, I do not ever seen that word, much troubled me. And my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. Daniel was much troubled. Okay? There, um, Daniel just seen a vision of four Gentile world kingdoms. God's view of what Nebuchadnezzar saw in the form of a great statue in chapter 2. Four kingdoms would arise that God would use to chastise Israel. Babylon, Persia, Greek, Greece, and Rome. And out of the fourth kingdom would come a little horn, Antichrist, who would speak terrible things against the Most High God and would persecute Daniel's people. But it tells us that, um, um, that the kingdom of Antichrist would be take away and that the Most High would come and have an everlasting kingdom and all would serve and obey Him. So he sees the coming of Messiah. Okay, the stone cut without hands that becomes a mighty mountain that Nebuchadnezzar sees in chapter 2 and Daniel interprets. But Daniel's not rejoicing. There's an element of sweetness there. These kingdoms will be overthrown. He's troubled because he knows what has to happen first. His cogitations or his thought processes are troubled. Daniel 8.27 I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. Okay, Daniel got a prophecy or a vision from the Lord that said he was sick for many days. Okay? What Daniel learns in chapter 8 is that a coming persecutor of Israel would be a type of Antichrist. What he learned in chapter 7 is that Antichrist will have a role in the Great Tribulation to persecute Israel. These things made Daniel sick, even though the end of the matter was glorious. There's an element of what we're studying here in Revelation, my friends, that ought to make us sick to our stomach when we think of what's going to happen to this country and what's going to happen to this world before people wake up. Oh, praise God for the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ and the rapture for His church. Praise God about the second coming. All of this will be made right. But it's not enough to rejoice. John's example here ought to be an example to us. What is sweet to the mouth is bitter to the belly. And in that bitterness, what should we find? I'll get to that in a moment. The Bible tells us Ezekiel the prophet on many occasions mourned and grieved over what God showed him. In fact, Ezekiel was told his wife was going to die as a testimony to Israel and that he wasn't even allowed to mourn her death. Wasn't easy being a prophet of God. Zechariah thirteen, eight and nine. Okay. The context here is the last days, the invasion of Israel by the beast, the Antichrist, the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation. And we read about the coming of Christ in chapter 14 of Zechariah when He splits the Mount of Olives. But what God is teaching here, or revealing through the prophet, is in that day, of all the Jews living in the land, two-thirds of them will perish. Two thirds of the Jews living in the land during the tribulation are going to perish. The remnant will only be one third living in the land. One third. When Paul says that, uh, you know, talks about the coming of Christ, and so shall Israel all be saved, the moment when Israel realizes Jesus is their Messiah, wakes up and calls upon him, the entire nation alive at that time will be saved. That's only one third of what will be living in the land. That's sweet and bitter. If you go to Isaiah chapter six, verse thirteen, Isaiah says this and the Lord verse twelve and the Lord have removed men far away and there be great forsaking in the midst of the land, but yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Zechariah says the remnant will be one-third living in the land. Isaiah says the remnant will be one-tenth. Is that a contradiction? No. Zechariah's talking about Jews living in the land, in the Holy Land. Do all the Jews in the world live in the Holy Land? No. Only a very small portion. Isaiah's talking about the remnant of the entire population at at that time, which is only one-tenth. Guys, that's sobering. One-tenth of Israel living in the time of Jacob's trouble will survive. This is some interesting numbers. Today, there's approximately 18.4 million Jews living in the world. True or false, most Jews in the world... Israel has the largest population of Jews in the world. True or false? It's false. What country has the largest population of Jews? United States. There's about 8.3 million Jews in the United States. About 6.3 million today living in Israel. Okay? So if there's about 6 million living in Israel, according to Zechariah the prophet, one-third of those living in Israel will be spared. That's only 2 million out of 6 million. Okay? Okay? 2 million Jews, if we're using today's numbers, out of approximately 18 to 20 million is what? It's only one-tenth. So, these numbers reflect what the prophet says. If you think of 20 million Jews in the world, one-tenth is the remnant. That's only two. And that really makes the Holocaust seem a lot Less destructive when compared to this. You know, we talk about the Holocaust. It was a historical thing. It was terrible. And no man ever has a right to do that to another human being. And when you mess with God's people, it doesn't matter how backward or disobedient God's people are. When you mess with them, judgment's coming. Okay? But the Holocaust pales in comparison to what's coming. And that's a hard thing to share with Israelis. They don't like it but we love them enough to tell them the truth. Come to Yeshua and be a part of the church and escape these things. But know that we love you and we're praying for you and God will restore you. He will return and fight for you. But when I think about what has to happen first, my belly turns to rot. It's very humbling. It's very humbling. Israel shall be restored. Messiah will save. The kingdom will come. That's sweet as honey. Jeremiah tells us in a couple of places. Uh, Jeremiah 33 14 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform the good thing that I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. And then back in chapter 32, he says, For thus saith the Lord God, Like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. Praise God! But to get to this point, <coughs> this place, great judgment, a great purging must come first. The time of Jacob's trouble. And that, my friends, is as bitter as wormwood. This is the essence of what is happening with John here in Revelation. What we've seen from these other prophets. This is the essence of what's taking place. Okay? The Old Testament prophets were troubled concerning Israel. What John sees as sweet and yet bitter concerns Israel as well as the whole world. In fact... What John sees is bitter and disturbing enough that it causes him to just sit down. He can't stand up anymore. How do we know this? We know this because in the first verse of chapter 11, he's told to get up. Rise. So John was so disturbed, he sat down. Okay? For us that take the Scriptures seriously, particularly in this day and time, the Word of God should so be. Just like what John experiences here. It should be sweet as honey to the mouth. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste the Word of God. Eat it up and it's sweet honey in the mouth, the psalmist says. But, it also ought to be a bitter burden when the consequences of rejecting that Word is considered. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. I love jumping all over the Scriptures and letting Scripture interpret Scripture. I have quoted from every single book of the Bible in this study except, I believe, Song of Solomon. I have not forgotten that. We will find a way. Luke 19, 41 through 44. Besides, if I keep you guys flipping, Scriptures, you won't get sleepy. It's a good exercise. It's Jesus... Okay. After his triumphal entry, sweet as honey, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and he wept over it. Jesus was just recognized as the Prince. Fulfillment of Daniel 69 weeks. But yet he wept over the city, said, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace but now they are hid from thy eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thy enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee around, and keep thee in on every side, and shall even lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. They didn't know the time of Christ's visitation. They didn't study the prophets. They didn't read and understand that at the precise time, counting from the commandment of, uh, of um, Artaxerxes until Messiah the Prince would be 69 weeks of years. They didn't understand that Messiah would come and actually visit the second temple built by Zerubbabel and remodeled by Herod. The prophet Haggai said that what would make the second temple more glorious than Solomon's temple is that the desire of all nations would come and stand within her. Haggai the prophet said that Messiah had to come when the second temple was still standing. That's a verse I love to take Israelis to and say, Jesus has to be the Messiah. If He's not, then your God has lied to you. The second temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So either Messiah came while it was standing, that was the time of Yeshua. Or you can't trust your Bible. They should have known the time of their visitation, and they didn't. They should know who Antichrist is and not be deceived by him, but they won't. Neither will half the people that claim the name of Christ in this country who will be left behind by the rapture. The God they're serving today, they don't even realize. The God that many preachers across this country are preaching, is, is preaching, being Preach today, they don't even realize it's Antichrist. They're not preaching Christ. Their Jesus is not Jesus of the Bible. It's the spirit of Antichrist. And when He comes, they will fall down at His feet and worship Him and receive His mark. Jesus said, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you know. We're just as foolish as, as, as Israel. We shouldn't be arrogant. Like, how could they not recognize their Messiah? We're just as foolish and blind, apart from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus wept over Jerusalem coming down from the Mount of Olives and it was a privilege for Ricky and I to stand in a spot coming down from the Mount of Olives and to look over the city and feel that same grief back in February. We prayed for that city as the Bible commands us to do for her peace, but knowing what has to come first is quite troubling. Oftentimes, the Old Testament prophets described what they were speaking as the burden of of the Word of the Lord. So and so the prophet, the burden of the Word of the Lord. Is there a burden to speaking the Word of God? I'm a street preacher and I'm telling you, yes there is. I'm not going to stand here and sugarcoat it. It's a burden to take the Gospel to places like Ladakh and to preach it in the streets. It didn't take much for me to talk myself out of going out to preach Friday night. Nobody called me. Didn't feel like it. I'd already gotten ready for bed. It's kind of a lame excuse. Why? Because it's a burden. It's a burden to speak truth to those that don't want to hear it. And it's hard. There ought to be an element in which the Word of God is a burden for you. Not because you don't believe it. Not because you doubt it, but because you know the seriousness thereof. Is the burden of God's Word enough to make you sit down? Or do you take it flippantly? In the sweetness of God's Word, just like in the sweetness that John tasted, there's joy, there's hope, there's comfort, there's peace, there's the blessed hope of the believer. But what should we find in the bitterness? What should we find in bitterness? The um, burden. Should we be finding discouragement and despair? Or should we find motivation? May the bitterness and the burden of God's Word, just like the sweetness gives us joy and hope and comfort and peace, may the bitterness and the burden give us motivation. Motivation to do what? Let's look at the next verse here. I am going to finish this chapter. says in verse 10, John took the little book out of the angel's hand and he ate it up, and it was in his mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as he had eaten it, it was belly, and his better. It was. Blah, 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 blah. Sorry. It was, in his belly, it was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Here we have John's commission. We see his obedience in verses 8 through 10, despite the fact that God's word was sweet and yet a burden. Now he's given a commission. His commission, and this is all part of the testimony he gives us here in these difficult times, is that first, in light of the sweetness and the bitterness, he must prophesy again. This would not be the end of the testimony he must prophesy again before many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Before the things that John saw in Revelation 10 and up to this point in the entire book would come to pass, the prophecies, the testimony of the book must be declared again and again and again before many people, before many nations, before many languages, before many kings. Now John was an old man when he wrote this book. He was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. Tradition teaches us that he was released and he lived out his days in the city of Ephesus kind of as an elder, an old man overseeing the churches. John didn't travel anymore. John himself didn't go to kings, nations and tongues and tribes after the writing of this book. But God said it must happen. Before these things come to pass, thou, that is John, what you're writing must first be declared again and again and again in many places. John personally didn't do it, but has this happened since this was written? Oh yeah, it's happened. For almost 2,000 years in the church age, John's words that he wrote down were preserved and became the capstone of the Bible as God completed the canon. And very early on, the New Testament was copied and the Bible was printed or copied and copied and copied and translated and translated and went all over the world. And then when the printing press was invented, it was the first book ever printed on a printing press to the point that even today... In English, the King James Bible is the best-selling English book of all time. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time. And every one of those Bibles has as its capstone this testimony of John. God's saying here, these are sweet and bitter things. But understand, before they happen, they must be testified again and again before many peoples in many places. And that is exactly... What has happened for 2,000 years in this church age? Thou, John, is John as the author of the book. And John as the author of the book, as believers have taken this message and preached it and carried it, has truly prophesied again, time and time again. Warning from God. Long before it comes to pass, even the book of Daniel with all of his prophecies... Daniel says the time appointed was long. He understood there was a long time before many of this would come to pass. And in that long time appointed was time to warn God's mercy. God didn't bring the flood upon the earth after speaking to Noah about it for 120 years. Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years because God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The wheels of God's justice turn slowly. I know we'd like to see it come faster, but it's because God's merciful. Many years have transpired between John's writing here and the fulfillment which we haven't seen yet because God desires that this warning be preached. And it has been. Warning from God is the mercy of, of God. God's not like the gods of men. He's not like Allah. Allah is Antichrist. He's not the God of the Bible, by the way. God's not like the Hindu deities. He doesn't just randomly throw out judgment. He doesn't dispense judgment without warning. And revelation, as horrible as some of the judgments here are, is the mercy of God because God gave it years and years ago. And He still uses it to warn us, despite the fact we deserve judgment. The bitterness of this truth ought to motivate us to preach the Gospel with zeal and tenacity to both Jew and Gentile, especially in these last days. In the bitterness ought to be motivation because we're part of what John is commissioned to do here in verse 11. We're a part of that. When we preach this truth, we are doing what God said John must do. We're part of it. We're not observers, we're actors. So let's take the bitterness of it and let it motivate us to prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Guys, if you're going out and you're sharing the gospel, and you're preaching on the streets, we live in a day and time when every time you preach the gospel, you need to mention the coming of Christ and you need to mention the days we're in and you need to warn about the judgments in these books because they're a lot closer to us in time than was than is the death burial and resurrection of Christ 2000 years ago it all goes together you can't separate them if you're going to preach the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ the core of the gospel then preach his coming he's coming soon and he's bringing judgment And let that bitterness motivate you to warn people that think they are safe. That say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. We met a family in Nepal one time. They fancied themselves missionaries. And they had strange stories, had some strange charismatic doctrine. And the woman told a story about how she had a dream that she went to hell. And that God just blessed her. She had this vision of hell. And she knew what it was like. And Ricky and I immediately were not, that's not true. We don't believe that. It's not true. How dare you question somebody's experience. You know how I knew it wasn't true? Because if you went to hell and you really saw the bitterness of that place, you'd be out on the streets telling everybody you could about Jesus Christ and warning them not to go to that place. And that's not... The lifestyle these missionaries lived in Kathmandu. She never went to hell. She never saw it. Just a lie. Because if you really went there and saw it, you would be motivated to warn. And you'd be telling everybody you knew about the gospel. And yet these same people, when they heard we got beaten right in the park, blamed us and said, we shouldn't be out there saying offensive things to the Hindus. Lady, you never visited hell. you never seen that place. I don't need to visit hell in a dream or a vision to know how serious it is because the Bible is very clear. Be careful of dreams and visions. Antichrist deceives with mighty wonders, and dreams and visions. Be careful. Interpret everything by the Word of God. A lot of times people like us that believe in a pre-tribulational rapture are accused of being lazy. Oh, we're just sitting back waiting for the rapture. We're not going to worry about it. We're not preaching the gospel. The time of Jacob's trouble is Jacob's problem. That's not my concern. Friends, that's not me. (laughs) I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. That's not my attitude. I want to see Israel be saved. I want to see people come to Christ. It's a motivation to preach the truth. The Bible tells us in Jude to earnestly contend for the faith. To strive for the faith. To preach the Word and we must do so in these days. Well, we're at the end of chapter 10. A commission that we are a part of when we share the gospel, whether it be a tract or a conversation or open-air preaching, we are active an active part of what God said must happen before these things come to pass. End of chapter 10. But, guys, remember, this is just a chapter division. The chapter and the verse divisions aren't inspired. They were added by men of God later and they're helpful tools. But it's just a chapter division. The interaction here between John and the mighty angel continues, the parenthesis continues. Okay, So we've talked about John's obedience in the first eight, verses 8-10, through 10, his commission in verse 11 that we're a part of when we preach the book of Revelation, when we preach the coming of Christ as we share the Gospel. Now we need to look at his measurements. John's told to do something with regard to measuring. And I'm going to end here today, but I want you to see something. There was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar and them that worship therein. So it tells us the angel stood. Now we know the angel was standing in chapter 10 because he had one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, and made a pledge to heaven. We know he was standing. Here in verse 1 of chapter 11 it says he stood up. Well, how can a guy stand if he's already standing? What does that tell us? tells us that he sat down. Why did he sat down? Why did the angel, the mighty angel, Jesus Christ, on behalf of his people Israel, why did he sit down? Well, the angel says, the angel stood saying, rise. So he's telling John, get up. Well, that tells me John must have sat down. Well, John ate a book that was sweet in his mouth and bitter in his belly and it was obviously so bitter, if our stomach starts rumbling and we feel very bad nausea, what are we gonna do? We're not gonna stand up, we're gonna sit down. John was so disturbed that he sat down. But the angel must have sat down with him. When John sat down, this mighty angel sat down with him. My friends, this is a subtle truth here that you've got to dig to find, but to me it is a powerful picture of Christ's empathy for His saints. When John was sick and sat down, Christ didn't tower over him and rebuke him. He sat down with him. Let's close with this today. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We've already read this once. Verse 16. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus Christ, the one that stood amongst the lampstands in chapter 1, The judge with flaming eyes as fire and feet of brass that judged the churches of the church age. The Lamb worthy to open the scroll. The Lion of the tribe of Judah from Revelation 4 and 5. And this mighty angel that appears on behalf of the nation of Israel. And many other things we're going to see about Jesus that makes Him mighty and powerful and terrible in His presence. Saul, one of his own, sit down. And he sat down with him. Jesus is our high priest, and he empathizes with us, my friends. When we need to sit, he'll sit with us. When we need to be carried, he will carry us. And when we need him, he's there. He's there. A powerful picture of Christ's empathy for his saints. My friends, you won't find that with the gods of man made religion distant and unknowable but not Jesus, a friend of sinners. A friend of sinners. Praise God. We're in there today. I look forward to getting into chapter 11. Revelation 11 is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. In the entire Bible. And you're going to find out why. We're going to learn about the tribulation temple. What's being said here. John's told to measure certain things. He's told not to measure certain things. We're going to understand why. We're going to read about the ministry of two of God's special witnesses that have been ordained. Going back to the prophet Zechariah. We're going to ask the question, who are these witnesses? We can read about their ministry, about their martyrdom. We can read about their resurrection. What the earth does when these men die. what What it does when they rise. The ministry of a couple street preachers. The church disdains the street preacher today. But when God chooses two special witnesses, He doesn't choose kings. He doesn't choose philosophy professors. He doesn't choose seminarians or pastors of megachurches. He chooses two street preachers clothed in sackcloth. So the next time somebody tells you that street preaching is not of God and it's not effective, remember, when God picks two special witnesses for the tribulation to go to Israel, He chooses street preachers. But we'll get into that. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. And then we'll get into some interesting character sketches in chapter 12 and 13. Anybody have any questions? Man, it's good to be back. I love this book and uh, I love teaching it. And I hope that you're edified thereby.